alarm collisions, YYC follow the money. Welcome to Mr. Danny Moteca. How are you doing, Danny? I'm doing really well, thanks. Danny, I love what you and I've been on the show before. You've been on the show a couple times, maybe once for sure, maybe twice. You, I've really kept in touch. I love what you guys are about. And when you and I reconnected recently, I thought it was a really good opportunity to bring you in for this new kind of mini mini series that I'm doing inside the collisions around follow the money investing with purpose, where we talk and have real conversations with business owners, investors, thought leaders in our in our community that are really making the difference when it comes to this startup ecosystem and all the things that it means and all the different levels and scales uh, in Western. Canada, but even across Canada, because money knows no borders these days and things flow. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But before we go any further, let's jump in the old uh, Collisions YYC uh, elevator and say, what the heck is a SciGen? And then let's go from there. Yeah. So SciGen is a contract development and manufacturing organization uh, that is focused on psychedelic medicines. Um, we are basically an ingredients manufacturer, so we're licensed from Health Canada to produce drugs like MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, and several others. Uh, and we're a B2B business where we service drug developers uh, who are looking to bring a dr- psychedelic drug product to market. Interesting. Okay, so license from Health Canada. What? Give us a little bit of history on that, because this is relatively recent in terms of the ability to, like 10 years ago, you couldn't even have set up this business, correct? Well, I think that you, I think it would have been possible, like the legislation existed, okay. you would have been able to get a license. And, you know, sh- certainly analytical testing laboratories that would be testing samples for, you know, mm. the RCMP, for example, would have had the, this license. Okay. But there was definitely no market opportunity. Um, you know, there was still so much stigma associated with psychedelic drugs. Uh, I don't know if you would have been able to justify the need to the Minister of Health uh, okay, to it. have them grant a license to produce five kilos of MDMA, for example, um, which is our licensable limit for this calendar year. Uh, and so it's really been the evolution, I think, over the last decade or so where mental health has come into the spotlight and you know everyone's finally comfortable talking about how depressed and anxious they are. And <laughs> as a result of that, we need new interventions to help treat that. So interesting from the perspective of, you know, and, and someone who's done quite a bit of reading on this and has really a, a deep interest in the role psychedelics can play in just the betterment of humanity to, to be over altruistic. But I actually believe that. And it was, you know, for anyone who doesn't understand, it, do some journeying, do some research, do some journeying. So that came out wrong. Do some research about doing a journey. But fundamentally, like Michael Pollan has a great book where he really kind of dives into his own journey of understanding this space. But it's like we kind of put this big pause button on the psychedelic space. Like a lot of the research that's being done now feels like it was kind of picked up where it left off when the government decided to reschedule all of these substances back in what late 70s mid to late 70s or even even into the early 80s i forget the kind of the end of the vietnam war kind of that area there's lots of there's lots of like deeper conspiracies of kind of why it happened and when it happened but we're kind of picking up where that generation and a lot of those individuals are still involved in the space is that kind of from your perspective Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of the those pioneers who, you know, I think it was considered academic career suicide to keep researching psychedelic drugs. Um, But people had such a steadfast belief that these things were important that, you know, slowly but surely, organizations like Johns Hopkins and, you know, maps, for example, have been doing good research for the last 30 years. Um, And I think it was uh, 2018 or 2019 when the FDA granted this breakthrough therapy designation for both psilocybin and MDMA that, uh, you know, it kind of signaled this huge amount of interest in continuing the clinical research from back, 
um, from back in the sixties and seventies. Kind of picking it up. And yeah, there's, there's yeah. so much interesting. I encourage anybody who's interested or curious in this space, either personally or from a business and investment perspective, there's lots you, the, the rabbit hole is deep when it comes to the research that's available on this and you go, Oh, I've, this is new. And it's, it's actually, you know, everything that's, that's, that's the new is that it's old is new again, kind of thing. So much of yeah. the things we're going, Oh, I can't believe it does this. They were very aware of the benefits that it caused in the late sixties. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that there was just some, you know, approaches to the research that made it, that made authorities a little bit anxious. Um, you know, some of the messaging, for example, was uh, irresponsible. And while I personally am a fan of what Timothy Leary was researching and a lot of his, um, his ideas, you know, I do have to admit that he was a little bit reckless in the way that he was, um, I guess, pushing that messaging out to the masses. And in today's world, people are coming at it from a much more responsible approach. It's clinical research first. It's not tune in, you know, drop out. It's uh, we won't fight your wars. We won't work in your factories. We won't. So you're, exactly. you're putting ever the fabric of the world that the, that the, the powers that be had created for many cycles and, and allegedly threatening that. So what could go wrong? But I, I there's a yeah. lot of Timothy Leary kind of wore a little bit of the target on his back then. And he's still kind of wearing it now when you go down the research of like, we don't want to blame him, but he definitely maybe could have handled it differently is the rhetoric you see. Yeah. And I think a lot of people blame him and I think it's too bad because I think there was a lot of other powers at play there as well. I mean, you know, it was the U S government, uh, arguably that did the worst research in psychedelics with MK ultra. Um, oh, the but, work the CIA mm, did. I've recently gone down that rabbit hole. Wow. That's, you want to talk about nasty affairs and the, in mistreatment of humans, <laughs> the, the CIA was yeah. right up there. <laughs> surprise, surprise in the Nixon, in the Nixon government and uh, tricky Dick and, and Kissinger and that whole crew. <laughs> Uh, anyways, let's not dwell too much in the past. So, hey, you're a business, you're setting this up, you've got the idea, and you start talking to investors. You start going out there going, hey, yeah, we want to do this thing. Yeah, we're going to need some, setting up a lab isn't cheap, we need some funds. How were you met and what was that market like when you started shopping this around from an investor perspective? Well, when we first started shopping it around, it was a lot easier to raise capital uh, than it is today. Oh, interesting. There was a lot of interest, I think, uh, you know, as... For example, those breakthrough therapy designations stimulate or signaled to investors that this was going to be the next big medicine, the next big breakthrough in medicine. You know, people had seen returns in the cannabis industry at 500, you know, sometimes a thousand percent if they got in very early and they sold at the right time of the market. And so I think people saw this as that once in a lifetime opportunity that happened twice in a decade. Um, and so people were throwing money in. Most of the capital we raised was through the pandemic. And, you know, we raised about $13 million without ever having met one of our investors or shaking their hand. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, you know, to, through the latter half of last year, um, because there is really no market for these drugs, it's all a speculative market. And I think anyone who is a proponent of psychedelics believes that there will be a market in the future, but it's still speculative right now. So, you know, there was this first wave of investor interest, stock prices ran up like crazy, there was a huge retraction, um, which, you know, in the micro lens of, psych of the psychedelics industry, if you want to call it that, um, it's been significant, but also biotech in general has seen a big retraction. Um, my CFO was at a conference and there was a presentation just on Tuesday that the average biotech IPO is down 60% over last year. So there's just been like this huge you know, correction in the markets. And, um, and nowadays it's, you know, you really need to find people who are interested in investing in manufacturing, 
um, which is also a little bit of a niche, right? A lot of people are focused in when you're thinking about biotech, they want to invest in a potential drug because that's when you're going to see, you know, if it's a blockbuster drug, a billion dollar market, yeah. a thousand X return. A thousand X, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, manufacturer, like, but that's a binary outcome. Either the drug succeeds or it fails and, you know, either all your money disappears or you do really well. Uh, the nice thing about manufacturing is that it's not so binary. We get to service a lot of different customers. We offer a lot of different products. And so it could be that three or four of the 12 products that we're going to offer do end up generating a significant market in the future. And our returns might not be that thousand X, but it might be a hundred X. And so that's, you know, one reason that we're really interested in manufacturing. It's like selling the picks and shovels to gold miners. Yes. hundred um, percent. Is this a little bit of a, of a patient capital story where everybody got in because there was like, Oh wow, this looks a lot like this other thing that we maybe either made a ton of money on or we missed out on. And we don't want to, we don't want hey, we're not going to miss out twice, you know, putting that parallel, which I, the cannabis and the silk, what's happening in psychedelics, they're very different, but to the uneducated, they probably looked a lot similar. And I think it was marketed very similar as well. I mean, so much of the language early on was all about the entourage effect and natural products and, you know, psilocybin, this, this fungi. And so I think that um, a lot of investors were probably misled early on thinking that this was just going to, you know, there was going to be immediately a medical market and then that was going to transform into a legal market. And mm. um, the time horizons for this are just, they, they're necessarily longer because it's drug development. Okay, I appreciate that. Oh, you touched on it. I want to dive into that, like the medical market and what that looks like from establishing a a regular customer base for a company like yourselves versus recreational or kind of legalized market and where we might be there. How are those? Are those two? Because in cannabis, to the outsider, it seemed to happen really quickly. Which again, there was you know medical cannabis was there's some legalities and some rules around it that that were probably not as prevalent or in the public eye. But from when it hit the public to when it went to it legalized, seemed to be literally overnight night (laughs) yeah absolutely like medical cannabis was available from 2001 and then mainstream media picked up on it in 2015 or so 2015 2016 and then boom it was legal in 2018 so there is some talk about you know the interests of in psychedelics accelerating timelines to legalization because it's already quite mainstream news now but i'm not sure that that's going to happen. Okay. Um, when you're talking about like the difference between a medical market uh, and a recreational market, I think it's, um, you know, so SciGen, for example, we're a business to business. Our, you know, our customers are other businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, the good thing is that if a customer uses SciGen and our methods in their, to source their APIs, in a sense, they almost get locked into our manufacturing methods because our compounds will have a very known impurity profile I see. and all their toxicology work is done with that API and with those impurities. So the data set that's collected that they're presenting to Health Canada, you know, as they move along the drug approval pathway, they kind of lock themselves in further and further to that process. Um, mm, interesting. So from a sticky stickiness perspective, we're just going to talk about the nuts and bolts of the value of the business. The longer I go with through my clinical trials, the more approvals I get, I can't go back and change my variables later on. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pot committed there. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, mm. from a, you know, from a drug developer's perspective, they should have rights to that manufacturing process. Cause if, you know, worst case scenario, there's a fire or a flood or a tornado that takes out our facility, they shouldn't have their drug development plans stopped for two years while we rebuild, right? They should be able to take that to another CMO. Okay. Um, but certainly the methods that SciGen are using and developing will be required um, for the lifespan of their drug. 
Okay, that makes that makes sense. So from the perspective of that customer base that you're looking at, um, I'm and you and I've chatted before. That's a global customer base. That's not North America. That's not Canada. That is potentially anywhere in the world. What what does the world of borders look like when it comes to substances like this? Do we just fall in because drugs move all around the world anyways? And we're talking about drugs that you know have this weird stigma about them, but the drug market is huge, and the and the world around that is very well entrenched and very well regulated and has a has a clear process of how it works. <laughs> Yeah. So, and the restricted drug element of psychedelics just adds a layer of a layer of restriction. Like, in order for Psygen to export a restricted drug to another country, we first need an import permit from that jurisdiction. We use that import permit to apply to Health Canada for an export permit. You know, as long as all of the details match and that the, that export permit is approved, um, and it includes the details of you know what port of entry or what port of exit is going to leave the country. You know, what is it going to go by air or sea or plane or a mixture? You know, what are what is every port that it's going to go through, every major city that it's going to go through? And, you know, you have to follow that shipping manifest as well. Uh, but once you have all those details, you just find a, a carrier that can give you confidence that those drugs aren't going to be diverted to, you know, illicit markets. And right. it's uh, it just adds timeline, essentially. Okay, just more more steps in the process and more boxes to check to be diligent yeah. around it. And right now, the kind of you know demand you're seeing or the the potential customers. Obviously, you don't have customers because you're currently not producing, correct? So you're still you're still pre pre product like you're not developing products as of yet. Uh, well, that's actually we originally we were um, we'd partnered with a lab at the University of Alberta, and oh, so we right. had leveraged a third party license we produced about half a kilo just under half a kilo of gmp psilocybin which allowed us to establish a customer base so from that supply which is now at our license site we have exported to a number of different countries in europe uh, in the united states um, we have supplied material to clinical trials in the uk and into canada uh, and our material has also been used in the special access program so direct patient access uh, for kind of emergency use authorizations. Um, so we have, you know, we do have a small amount of revenue from last year, but you no know, operations are just about to get started at the plant. Okay. So from a, an investment, where you're at in your investment cycle, you said you've raised 13 million. Where are you, where would you consider, where would you put yourself? And I'm always trying to, for the average person from the outside, they hear seed and they hear angel and they hear pre-seed and they hear series A and series B. Where would you put yourself in that kind of line of events when it comes to uh, the fundraising you're, you're, you're working on now? Yeah, so the next raise that I would, I mean, it, I would suggest it's a Series A. Like, I find this whole terminology a little <laughs> bit strange. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. You know, That's maybe the, I, the root of my question. <laughs> yeah, but when I look at, you know, what is normal, say, in the Silicon Valley, we're looking to go out and raise kind of $8 million uh, valuation, pre-money valuation below $50 million. So I kind of look at that and within the lens of, Silicon Valley terminology is a Series A raise. Okay. Um, and so ideally that $8 million will give us 18 months runway. It gives us some ability to do research and development, improve um, and develop some technologies for scaling these processes. Because right now the clinical research market, you know, a kilo of material is going to go quite a long ways. Okay. But once those drugs are approved for market, you know, in five, six, seven years time, it could be annual demands of hundreds of kilos. Okay. And that when you're considering scaling chemical manufacturing technologies, um, you know, you, yeah, there's just ways to develop your tech so that you're 
that you have a lower environmental footprint so that you can develop some intellectual property around novel processes. And so all of these things are obviously attractive to biotech investors and something that SciGen is interested in, in doing. And would you consider yourself when you're going out to having these conversations, when you're looking for investors, are you looking for investors that are comfortable in the biotech space? Yeah, certainly. Like we want people who understand the time horizons. You know, mm-hmm. ideally okay. they understand that psychedelics is not really its own industry. Like it's, in my opinion, psychedelics is a subset of the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So people who speak that language, who understand what GMP, good manufacturing practices is, you know, people who understand the pharmaceutical supply chain and why a CDMO is valuable. Um, it's, you know, it, it can be hard uh, talking to investors who are just totally from a different industry and who don't speak that language in order to explain the value proposition to them. I do appreciate your kind of clarification of like, we're not saying I'm looking for psychedelics investors. I'm looking for investors that understand this space as a derivative or a subset of the pharmaceutical industry and then bordering into the biotech, which is these are longer time horizons and maybe we don't have the thousand X, but we're a manufacturer. So if you're familiar with that space, I can only imagine, I don't care what it is in life, those conversations are a lot easier to be had when your audience is a little more comfortable, educated slash experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. now the big question is, where do we find said group of individuals? Are these, uh, you know, you find them in Calgary at the coffee shop or do we need to go a little further afield? <laughs> yeah, I would say that most of our investment, like some family and friends obviously have participated from Calgary and the local mm-hmm. communities, but within Canada, most biotech has been centered in Toronto and Montreal. Okay. So mostly biotech investors are coming from out east okay. uh, and then south of the border. There's some interest in Europe. Uh, so we are looking and open to investment from the European community, mm. but by far the vast majority uh, would be centered in the Eastern seaboard. Also, there's a huge biotech hub in Boston. Um, so kind of the Boston, New York, Montreal, Toronto, I'd say that's where most of our conversations are happening. Okay. Um, but then on the flip side, a lot of the psychedelic movement has been, you know, traditionally West Coast, huge interest and in advocates in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, and quite a lot of interest as well in Vancouver. So I'd say that, you know, our investment interest is kind of balanced between those two groups, like psychedelic enthusiasts out West and then biotech in the East. Uh, interesting. Uh, that, that does make a lot of sense just culturally as well. You said this to me, I think the first time we chatted that at the time, and I've, I've repeated it a few times, so I should check if it's still true, that you know Calgary specifically is a hub for psychedelics research in Canada, tied mm. back to your relationship with the university. And I think that's how, I think it was Deborah, Deborah Karash from the university is what connected me with Peter that eventually connected me with you and one, two, three degrees. And here, you know, you, you and I have got connected over the last couple of years. Is that still a true statement? And how much is that a factor for you as a business when you've got that level of academic uh, activity going on in, in your backyard. Yeah, it, it still seems to be true. Certainly there's, um, there's the, the, I think it's the Parker research chair at the University of Calgary. Um, as I understand that position should be announced in the coming months. Um, so U of C is going to put itself on, on the map as an important and prestigious uh psychedelic research hub in Canada. I forgot about that search they were doing for that head of, yeah, I kind of forgot about that, which kind of blew me away when I saw that job posting essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I was just talking to someone recently who, who suggested that in the next month or so, um, there should be an avenue, I think an Avenue magazine article coming out and kind of announcing this research chair. So I'm I'm really excited to see. You know, it's getting mainstream when, (laughs) 
I know. I, I, I know the editor in chief over there at Avenue. Uh, uh, I, I was actually at an event the other night, and she was sitting beside me at the table. I got to chat, got to chat with her, and so I'm, I might. Uh, anyways, I'm, I might pull on that thread and see if I get some inside track. <laughs> yeah, well, let me know because I'm very curious who they are and what their research program is going to look like. Um, really interesting. But yeah, and I mean, otherwise within Calgary, there's I think three or four ketamine clinics that are also interested in using their the assets that they're building to expand into psychedelic medicine once that once those clinical trials are approved um you know like i can think of yeah atma numi uh newly uh savvy mind and bloom so like there's a ton of groups interested in psychedelic medicine in calgary interesting i just got the invite uh from Lana to the Savvy Mind uh, grand opening, I think next week. And I met some, I met some of those individuals through you and I'm very curious to kind of see what they're doing. And they certainly sounded like they had early, very early demand and were able to, you know, specifically with ketamine because it's more of a unknown or a comfortable substance in the medical community for doctors. Yeah. And, and I really like what they're doing because they're using intramuscular ketamine there. So it's, oh, uh, interesting. it's a much I, more, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. That's a much more bioavailable and like predictable route. I know some other clinics are doing lozenges, which have less predictable effects. And I think it works for some and less, less so for others. Mm. Um, oh, I didn't know about that. Well, I'm actually, I'm sure I will learn it. I booked in for a tour, so I'm going to get the whole full, full meal deal when yeah. I go and meet with them next, next week. Yeah. Incredibly beautiful. Um, when you think about going out and talking to the world's, you know, the world financial markets to come and invest in, how much does that play a factor when a university like Calgary gets on the map? Like, is that, cause there's always the why Calgary, why are you guys in Calgary? What, what is a Calgary? You know, I have a, I have a chat later today with, um, Tannis Gaffney, who's the CMO at Travel Alberta, just talking about this whole, what is a Calgary on the global stage? As we look at tourism being a huge driver here, is that been a factor for you at all when you're out there talking to people or do they care where you're based or does, how much does that play a factor for you? Um, I don't know how much people care where we're based, but the message that we really want to send is that, you know, investing in manufacturing capacity within Canada is important because a lot of pharmaceutical production is overseas, either in China or India. Um, and as we've seen through the pandemic, you know, relying on supply chains uh, can be quite challenging. So this idea of onshoring medicine production is becoming increasingly important. Uh, there's a company called Continuous in the United States that got a $70 million um, investment from the Department of Defense to onshore manufacturing of certain key drugs that became inc incredibly scarce during the pandemic. Right. Um, and so I think that opened our eyes a little bit as a, you know, as a North American culture where uh, we just, we can be very, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, it, we're in a delicate position and unless we onshore manufacturing, you know, we're just kind of at the whims of global supply chain, which is not the most um, smooth system currently. Well, again, it's, it comes down to what's the risk profile. And I think through COVID, things that we took for granted became very, very acutely aware of like, oh, wow, we can't even create our own vaccine here on shore. We can't do that on shore. Like, I think that, yeah. and that it, it got to the mainstream level of, let's be honest, most of us bang through our days. And if it doesn't hit us in the face, it's not, it's not often on our radar. It's not a criticism. There's so many things hitting us in the face every day. How do yeah. you fit it all in? So that's interesting from just a, a, a like, whoa, hey, just a second. We didn't, we didn't realize, maybe some people realized how important that was, but now I think at a mass scale. Um, curious, and maybe it's not tied to that, but I always follow the money investing with purpose. And I'm always curious of the role. You can't go anywhere these days without reading something about what is your purpose and what, you know, what real big problem are you solving in the world? So 
I'm asking this in two ways, more so like, I guess, what is that for you? But also when you're out there raising money, how much does that actually factor into the conversation? Because when you Mm. are early on and you, you know, maybe your product isn't perfected yet and your, you know, your whole supply chain isn't working and you don't have a roster of customers, there's a little bit more ambiguous nature to invest in us because of X. How much has that been a factor for you in telling, in telling the SciGen story? Well, I, I think that the most successful pitches are the ones that you lead with the purpose, you know, like the purpose of psychedelic medicines are to improve mental health and wellness. And I think that it's really that wellness piece that sticks for most, most people. Cause you know, like the vast majority of us, I, I would say, do not have this clinical indication where you'd be able to access psilocybin or MDMA or, or LSD, but that's not to say that they wouldn't still be helpful for us. Um, and so this, you know, this grand vision or this purpose of improving access to psychedelic medicines for mental wellness, um, I think turns a lot of investors on. And I think when you just start to go down the CDMO route and saying, oh, we're, you know, in, in, we're building manufacturing capacity because the problem in the industry is that there's no manufacturing capacity. It's like people just kind of, they don't hear that message. They don't it doesn't, really understand doesn't, it. it I doesn't, don't f- doesn't grab me in the heartstrings, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, exactly. But okay. when you say that, you know, someone who's been suffering from major depressive disorder for 20 years and in a single eight-hour treatment session can get more therapy than, you know, the previous 20 years of psychotherapy combined, that can be really impactful for them. And so everyone knows someone who's depressed or anxious or who's dying and is anxious about the fact that they're dying. And when psychedelic medicines can be applied to all of these mental health indications uh, and then can be taken a step further as a prophylactic medicine for wellness, I think that that's the message that speaks to people and makes people excited about this prospective sub-industry. I really appreciate your perspective on that because we've all... the. The Prozags of the world and the, the the SSRIs and all the things that have kind of been shown to not really work that well. Like I remember when every second person I knew was on something in that category, it's kind of felt like that's run out and like, well, geez, you know, and as a friend of mine always says, what do we have to look forward to? That hope about, well, this actually can, and the clinical trials that I've read about, like it, for anyone who's listening and they're like, oh, so it's, you know, mushrooms, isn't that going to a, to a bush party and taking too much mushrooms and getting uncomfortable? And yeah, there's those experiences that maybe some of us have had over the years, but there is a an amazing body of research right now. It, it speaks to exactly what Danny just said about actually improving the quality of people's lives from that entheogen approach versus the psychedelic of like a spiritual and transcendent and get a little hippie if you want. There's some reality of getting reconnected to the world you live in that I, I think psychedelics do better than almost anything out there. <laughs> Combine that with good food, good exercise, a walk in the woods, a good night's sleep. Like it all still comes together, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, just when you, it it can be pretty easy to get overwhelmed by the problems that are facing us today, you know, with, uh, you know, no matter where you lie on the scale of climate change, you know, whether you believe it's going to be the end of the world and the human species, or whether you just acknowledge that the climate is changing, and there's going to be a lot of social change as a requirement of rising sea levels, droughts, you know, people are going to have to migrate. And I think the biggest challenge facing us in the next 30 years is going to be this mass migration of human beings where all of a sudden you've got cultures colliding and clashing and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how those cultures can work together. And so, uh, you know, there's these really overwhelming problems that are facing us. And I think that if you can take a psychedelic and you can feel connected to these other groups that, mm-hmm. you know, you might be kind of coming up against and being afraid of or you know, not being able to accept that they're also a legitimate human species or c- culture community. 
um, I think that psychedelics are really important for the problems that we're going to be facing over mm-hmm. the next 20, 30, 40 years. I think you're, I, well, my personal experience would say I 100% agree with you in that sense of oneness and connectivity around also the the deep science of what's happening kind of in these clinical trials, which I feel we maybe should just put a pin in because that feels like a whole nother episode. We can, our, our, even our voice and our tone is changing as we're moving in this new road. So let's put your investor hat back on and the guy who's running this business and the, the, the sleepless nights and the long days and all that stuff that is implied when you're building something like this. Any kind of lessons learned or some key things you'd want to share? Just, you know, maybe things you wish you knew a year ago. And for anybody listening who's on the journey of whatever that looks like for them for building a business and raising and raising capital, uh, what, what's a little bit of your highlight reel? Yeah, let me let me think about that. You know, I, I mean, it's so interesting because you talk to people and, and everyone has a different idea of how you should raise capital. Some people say, go out and take money from absolutely anyone who you possibly can. And I think that that's important to a degree, but there's also something about finding money that's aligned with your values. Um, and so that's been something that's been important is staying positive and just kind of following every lead and turning o- turning over every rock. But at the end of the day, making sure that I'm well connected to the people that I'm really trying to court and demonstrating that value. Um, I think that making sure that you have a really robust strategy is key because it can be one thing to just kind of like sell a dream and then have people start to do your, do their due diligence. And then to start to see, Oh, well, you know, there's a bunch of questions that are unanswered. And, you know, if you have these questions answered, maybe we'd be more attracted to an investment. Um, you know, what, one thing that has been tough is just like seeing the taps turn on and turn off. There was so much money available. It was just so freely flowing at the end of last year. Uh, and those taps turned off this year. So just making sure that, you know, you're capitalized and that you've got different levers that you can pull to just extend your runway and keep your business afloat is, is super critical. Um, you know, that's kind of something that we're facing now, but we're, you know, I think that we're going to just raise a smaller bridge round. Like we wanted to go out and raise eight, but the market conditions right now are just showing that that's a very challenging thing to do. Um, so yeah, just making sure, like, I think that at the end of the day, it's all about optionality, making sure that you have options in front of you. As the, as the main, the main kind of face of this business, how much time would it say like that going out, even raising that bridge round, does that end up taking up the majority of your time? And this is a constant conversation of like, of course it should take up your time. It's important. But meanwhile, you've got this business that still needs to be driven forward. And how much has that been a factor for you? Just the balance of of doing the two things at once, which is just the reality of it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I see the CEO has three jobs. One is to build a strategy Two is to hire a team capable of executing that strategy. And then third is raising the money necessary to execute that strategy. And so, you know, I think that so long as you have a good team behind you to go out and actually run and execute the business, it gives you more time to focus on raising the capital. And so certainly as it, you know, as you get into these crunch zones where it's, you have to spend 80% of your time, you know, finding investors, reaching out to investors, you know, pitching to them, following up on all the due diligence, like it takes a lot of time when you're talking to 40 funds and angels, of and, course, you know, banks. So, um, so I think at the end of the day, it's as long as you're supported by a good team, which, you know, I think Hoffman every day that I am, yeah. um, 
yeah, I, you can go out and just spend all your time raising money. No, fair, 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 which again, it's your sale. It's your kind of, it's your most important pipeline right now from that perspective. Yeah. yeah. How has it just, you know, curious, the talent conversation, I can't have a conversation with a business owner in Calgary and we don't, and talent comes up in one way or another, uh, that sense of purpose or that opportunity or that excitement around this industry that you're, that, that you're tapping into, has that helped with the hiring as well? I'm imagining it's yes, but I didn't want to just assume it was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's one of the nicest things that I hear is that no, several of our staff have never had a job that's more meaningful to them um, because they believe in the outcome and the mission of what we're doing. Um, And so when times can get tough, when, you know, people are just grinding away, writing SOPs day after day and, you know, just waiting for this lab that is so close to being operational, um, it keeps everyone really well connected and, and really well aligned with the mission of where we're headed. Which I really appreciate that. And so, so many companies struggle to have that. You know, you might be a great business that does a great thing, but it doesn't have that big purpose. You don't, you're not necessarily saving the world in, in some way, even though you might be delivering a great service or a great product and helping out your customers. But they don't always have that baked in uh, value proposition that, that, that you have, not you know, by design, not by accident. Um, last question, question I always love to ask. I'm, I'm handing you the magic wand, Danny. You can wave that magic wand across Western Canada in any way you want. You can make something come up. You can make something disappear. What would be your, and you can have a couple tries. You don't have to put, you don't have to put it all on one. It's your magic wand. My magic wand means I want more magic wands. So feel free to change a couple or move a couple things around. What would be your, what would be on your magic wand list? Um, I think one of the first things would be to reduce some of the barriers of the controlled substances regulations. I mean, it's a, yeah, just simply the barriers that are put in place with some of these controlled substances laws are are very challenging for for business owners. So I think if I could just wave my wand and um, but the other is, you know, I would say that um, creating a, a I'm a firm believer that psychedelic medicines should be available for people for wellness purposes. And that I do agree that clinical research is important in order for doctors to be able to prescribe these medicines to people, but psychedelics are also more, um, you know, it's like a shift in paradigm can, and how will a doctor know if LSD or psilocybin is going to work better for you as a patient. And so at the end of the day, it almost seems like it's going to be more important to empower the patient to do their own research and then to decide which psychedelic they would like to try, um, and which psychedelic they think is going to be better for them. And if they try psilocybin and it doesn't provide them what they need, then that maybe they should be able to go out and try LSD and, you know, have that experience. So I think that if I had a magic wand to wave, I would probably just create some sort of an access framework where there were clinics that you could go to as an adult and you could just be, you could have a facilitated psychedelic experience you know, legally sourced from somewhere that you know is pure and it's not going to harm you. Um, yeah, that's, I think the biggest thing that I would change is, is, and then of course, reducing the stigma. There's so much stigma still in psychedelics and it's, it can be easy for me to convince myself that it's, you know, that the times are changing, but 
you're always one conversation away from, oh, wow, I guess they're not completely changing. And I, I live in an yeah. echo chamber as well. I talk to a lot of people that are very open and willing to experience new things and are just looking to kind of fix that part of their life that just doesn't feel right. But there's a whole group that I'm not chatting with that feels the complete opposite about, you know, my dad being one of those examples. So I could probably, and I, yeah. you know what? I don't know because we just don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But there's a generation that was very, hey, the, the rhetoric and the media and the, you know, the government driven PR around the negativity of psychedelics, it was was, there was a lot of money went behind telling a very negative story that we've got to we've got to get past, and I think that's reality. I hope podcast episodes like this again help people engage with it and go, oh, okay, maybe this isn't as scary, or, or best, maybe I'm curious and I'm going to go learn a little bit more because that's all I can really hope after someone listens to a, a good, a, what I would say is a great conversation between uh, two two enthusiasts such as you and I. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Sajen dot, uh, what am I at here? Sajen .ca. Did you guys just update your website or am I? Yeah. I think, uh, we do. It is slightly updated. It still okay. needs more to be honest. It's still a little, no bit, shame in um, always wanting your website to be better. You're in, that's a long list of companies I know. So you're in good, you're good with that. Yeah. <laughs> But no, yeah, go, go check it out. You guys have some great information there. Obviously, I encourage people to reach out. You, you can find you on LinkedIn. Is there any, if someone is just dying to bring you a suitcase of money right now because they're so excited about what you guys are doing, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, I'd say that my direct email, Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, at sidegen.ca is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn irregularly. Yeah. Um, Got it. Yeah, it's... So email is definitely the best way. Fantastic. Danny, I really thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for the work you're doing. And I appreciate your willingness to just kind of chat about it openly and kind of open up the kimono a little bit as, as they say. And always enjoy our conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. 